but uh, today I'm going to, uh, the sermon's a little different than, than our normal going through verse by verse, and, and I want to begin by looking at love from a kid's perspective. I mean, we're, we're getting to the point where Ruth and Boaz start falling in love, and, uh, and the whole thing that goes through that. So, so what do kids feel love looks like? So uh, I, what I'm trying to say is my, my son Brandon, he's five and a half now, and he's already decided who he's going to marry. Did you know this? Um, the other day, uh, you know, he keeps saying, he, he says stuff like, well, mom, I, you know, I'm going to live here forever. And mom says, well, one day you'll, you'll be old enough and you'll buy your own house and, and you'll probably, you know, find someone to, to fall in love with. And, and, and so Brandon goes, uh, uh, well, before I get to that, I do want to say this. We're not the type of parents that look at our, our kids and go, oh, that's such a cute couple if he's playing with another girl his own age. Oh, they're such a cute boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh. We, don't, we don't encourage that. We don't push that. We want kids to be kids. We don't think that that should be pushed at that age. So if another, you know, another adult says that, uh, says that to them, I totally rebuke them. I mean, I, mean I, I don't say anything to them. I don't give them a dirty look, but I don't encourage it either. So the other day, Brandon comes home and he says, um, one day when I have my own house, Mom, will you come visit me? She's like, well, yeah, I, I sure will. He goes, I will get married. I'm going to marry Hannah. Now, Hannah is this really cute girl at his, you know, in his class at, at school. But he likes her not because she's so cute. He likes her because she is the ninja queen. <laughs> and apparently they've decided that, uh, that Brandon is training to be the nin- ninja king. So I don't know how that works out. But, uh, I mean, you've got to love kids' minds, right? So here's a few thoughts on marriage from kids. A 10-year-old Martin answered this question, what do, people, what do most people do on a date? And he said, the first date they tell each other lies, and it interests them enough to go on a second date. Another question, is it better to be single or to be married? Anita, age 9, said, it's better for girls to be single but not boys because boys need somebody to pick up after them. Will, age seven, says, this, uh, this just gives me a headache thinking about this stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need this kind of trouble. <laughs> Another question, how do, how do people in love typically behave? Wendy, age eight, said, when a person gets kissed for the first time, they fall down and they don't get up for at least an hour. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Wendy you know, has high expectations. I'm concerned for her future husband, Okay. How do you make love endure or last? Aaron, age eight, said, don't forget your wife's name. This will mess up love. <laughs> and then David, eight, said, be a good kisser. That, that may make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. <laughs> hey, that works. And here's a, here's a great question concerning beauty and love. What should you look for? Christine, age nine, said, Beauty is only skin deep, but how rich you are can last a long time. I'm concerned for her. The last question is, how do you get someone to fall in love with you? Dell, age six, says, tell them you own a bunch of candy stores. And then, uh, let's see, Camille, uh, age nine, says, shake your hips and hope for the best. And pray for Camille, okay? 
And then, of course, Brandon, uh, his answer, my son says, be a powerful ninja. So, you know, it's all solved. But this, this book of, of Ruth, this chapter is a very interesting chapter. Because in, you know, in, in uh, Ruth 1 and 2, we find out that the, the, you know, there was a famine in the land, so they moved to Moab, and, uh, and uh, Naomi's uh, husband dies, Elimelech dies, and, and she had two sons, and they married them off to Moab women, and they die. So here Naomi's left with, with, with these two ladies that she's contractually obligated to take care of. So on the way back to, uh, to uh, Bethlehem, they find out that the, you know, the famine is over, so they're headed back, and, and one of them decides to, you know, she releases them, and one of them decides to go back to Moab, and the other one says, no, where you go, I will go, you know, who your God is, is my God. So they head back to Bethlehem, and we learned over the last couple of weeks that, that farmers during the day were, were supposed to practice sloppy farming to allow those that were, were less fortunate, those that uh, needed a, a little bit of help to glean in the fields. And, and I found out something very interesting. The, this is still happening in our areas today, that gleaners will go out afterward, uh, apparently in, in some of the, uh, the grape fields, the grape vines and stuff, and glean afterward. And uh, I'm not sure how all that works today, but some people still even allow that. But we've learned a few things along the way. We, we learned that, that Ruth just you know, just happens to end up in the field of Boaz, and, you know, who just happens to, to really love God, who just happens to be uh, wealthy enough to own the fields, who happens to be single, who happens to see her, who just happens to have a conversation with her, who just happens to bless her and, and feeds her and invites her to, to the worker's table and gives her permission uh, to actually glean with his girls in the middle of the fields, when by law she should be on the sides of the fields, who just happens to give her and Naomi a huge gift of grain. He is the perfect man for her, okay? Looks like the perfect husband. He hears her story, and he is just amazed by it. And he goes beyond what the law is required for him, and he says to Ruth, stay here. I will protect you. Don't go to the other fields. He shows her respect, and he protects her, and he watches out for her. So she goes home with this truck full of, of, you know, truckload full of grain that day, about 30 pounds worth, which is unheard of. And Naomi says, bless this man. Who is this man? And Ruth says, well, it's Boaz. And Naomi says, well, just bless Boaz. God, you just need to bless this man. And then she takes a little initiative. It's interesting. It always seems like the ladies are the ones in the Bible that take initiative. Ruth has been working from that point until we get to this point in the story today. Ruth has been working between 6 and 12 weeks out in the field. And that doesn't seem to be a second date. He doesn't call. He doesn't follow up. She's left hanging. Started out really great. And now really nothing. She's just out there working. Like the average guy, Boaz doesn't know how to close the deal. You know what I'm saying? She's left wondering, well, what are we? Are we just friends? Are we more than friends? Ladies, have you ever had that internal conversation in your head? Anyone? No one wants to admit it, huh? Okay, that's fine. You know, she, you know she's thinking, do we need to have this defining you know, re, you know, conversation about our relationship? For 12 weeks, Ruth goes to work. Naomi is, is there going, did he show up today? Did he talk to you today? I mean, did he acknowledge you? Did, he, did you see him? Did he look over anything? 
And now that time is coming to an end. Harvest is almost over. They're going to go their separate ways unless something happens here. Like so many relationships, they could be great together, but right now we're just friends. It's interesting. Statistics say that friends actually make better marriages. Did you know that? Well, we don't want to admit that. Oh, we're just friends. Okay, well, we'll get to that a little later. But, but Naomi needs to do something, and this is exactly. Na- Naomi's counsel, actually, is a little bit risky here at this point. But when we get into it, you'll start to understand. This, and, and before we get into it, I do want to say, this is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Uh, we don't have to take this and apply it directly to our lives in this sense. It would be the exact same thing. Another Another passage like this would be, you know, Judas goes out and hangs himself. It's a descriptive passage. It doesn't mean that God wants us to go out and hang ourselves, right? Okay, so don't take everything as prescriptive. Um, it's just describing what happens. So here we go. Uh, uh, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Now remember, they're probably in Elimelech's, uh, on Elimelech's land and in his small house that he would have there. We're not really sure, but there's no cash flow. There's no men around. Um, you know, for that culture and that time period, you, you can't do everything like it should be done without the men around. I, ladies, I'm, I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying in that culture, it just couldn't be done. So Naomi remembers Leviticus 25 and the whole kinsman redeemer thing that we've kind of been hitting on. Where God mandates that a relative, a person who, who should buy the land, somebody who worked the land, and give some money to the, uh, to the widow or the orphan or the ones that may need the help. In other words, it was a way to keep the land within the family and to provide for the family. It's a beautiful way of God and, and the way he approaches his people. So Naomi, uh, you know, probably drew out a chart of relatives going, okay, who's all our relatives? What men could, could help us out here in this thing? And she starts thinking, you know, who would follow through on the way that God has commanded? And, uh, and she starts to understand that Boaz is the second in line as a kinsman redeemer for the property. So she starts to think, man, Boaz is a really nice guy. I mean, look at what he's done for Naomi, so, I mean, uh, Ruth so far. I mean, so she starts hatching this plan. And it has high risk written all over. It's a long shot. It's the Hail Mary pass. She lays at wake, uh, she lays at night awake thinking, how is this going to work? So she says to Ruth in verse 2, is not Boaz who's, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So it's Boaz's turn on the threshing floor because, you know, all the farmers would take their turn on the community threshing floor, and it's Boaz's turn. And basically, he'd invite all the workers. They'd have this big harvest party while they worked into the, the evening. And she says, Ruth, tonight is the night. We're going for it. Here's the plan. This is what you need to do. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Now, we all know that what's inside of us is what really counts, right? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm still 180 pounds, okay? My mind, what's inside of me, okay? Uh, reality is not so much, but, but we all understand that. But a good outfit, dressing up, can go a long way, right? Especially when you're trying to impress 
a mate, somebody you would like to, to date and so forth. I mean, he's only, I can imagine the conversation, Naomi going, he's, he's only seen you in your, in your work clothes. I mean, you've been in your mourning clothes for, for six weeks now. For, for 12 weeks, you've been mourning the death of your husband because they would dress a certain way for a certain period of time in that culture. And, uh, you know, he's only seen you, th- uh, you know, really kind of dirty and stuff. You can't be all romantic when you're dusty and dirty, you know. She's basically giving her dating advice. And she's saying, you need to look your best. Get in front of Boaz. Make sure he notices you. Smile really nice. Act like a lady in a sense. Not a worker in the field is what she's trying to say. Now, if there's a person that you like, if you're at the dating age and there's a person you like, you have to make sure they notice you, right? I mean, that's the way it works. Facebook is a very interesting thing. My, a few years ago, I had my 20, uh, my 20 um, high school reunion, and uh, an old friend of mine friended me before the high school reunion. And I remembered her from several classes. She's, you know, and I'm like, okay, let me go back and look at the, oh, yeah, I remember I had her for this class, that class, and stuff. And so we kind of talked back and forth, and, and, and then she says, I had a huge crush on you in high school. I'm like, oh, red flags, red flags. We ought to get together when, you know, at the reunion. And I'm right back, yes, my wonderful wife and I will be there, and we have a great three-year-old son, they would love to meet you, you know, and then, then I'll find out she was freshly divorced, and I'm like, oh, man. But what's the funny point, the point is, I had no clue that she even liked me in high school. If you like somebody, you have to get them to notice. You have to hang out with their friends. You've got to do something that's proper, not improper, but proper. So Naomi says to Ruth, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. So the famine is over. The celebration is happening. The band shows up. There's dancing. There's barbecue. They're praising the Lord. They're having fun. And she says, but don't, you know, uh, don't, don't let him know you're there. You know, let him eat. Don't, don't get between a man and his barbecue, okay? You know, just, let, you know, let him hang out with his buddies for a while. Watch the big game on the TV. So I'm just saying football season may be coming up. But anyway, but wait to have the conversation with him. I'm just saying. Verse 4, it says, when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, in today's day and age, this is extremely bad advice. Okay? When he lies down, just go sneak into his bed. No, 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 no. You have to understand the culture. You have to understand the context that is around this. When he lies down, note the place he's lying, then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, how many of you think this is bad counsel for that time? You would not be necessarily wrong, okay? How many of you think that she's just trusting Boaz as a good guy here? Anyone? I do. I mean, think of Boaz's character. Think of everything he's done up until now. Okay, kind of risky counsel here, but I think they're counting on Boaz being a righteous man because he's shown himself to be that. And this is a debate among Christian scholars. Uh, I don't believe she's crossing a line here, but I do believe she's kind of dancing on the line, if you know what I mean. You'll have to figure out what that line is. But the threshing floor is kind of an open area, lots of people there, and you would stay there to protect your grain. 
So verse 5, it says, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to the lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, wouldn't you love to know what this uncovering of the feet thing is, right? We don't really know because there's no other text that gives us a hint. The only thing that I could guess is, well, you know, if your feet get uncovered at night, you, you might get cold, so you kind of wake up. It makes you stir a little bit. Um, it was a way, uh, but in this culture, it was also a way to let them know you're interested in them. So in verse 8, it says, In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. Now, this is a great question. Anytime somebody that you don't know is in your bed, this is a great question, okay? I'm just saying. But for that time period, we also know that in Hosea 9, that Hosea talks about prostitutes would come to the threshing floor. That's the time when people had money in their pockets and it was payday. So prostitutes would come and, you know, and, and guys would be drinking. So Boaz is kind of concerned. Who is this person at my feet? So she responds, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are the kinsman redeemer. So what she is, say, is saying here is, is, well, let me go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Remember Boaz um, said that, that he, he prayed that God would take her under, uh, under God's wing, that God would watch out for her. Ruth is basically saying to him, you are the answer to that prayer. Love me, protect me, look after me. And the garment, uh, you know, the corner of the garment is kind of a symbol of that wing. And this is like the engagement ring of the day, the, you know, a proposal for marriage, a public demonstration here. And she's saying, I want to be your wife. I want to love you. I want to, to protect you. I want you to, to come home with me and be under my covers. I want, and he's saying, I, you know, you have my protection, be my wife. This is kind of the, the idea here. But Ruth is being very brave. She's going, I want to marry you. Hmm. She is proposing that he proposes. Some ladies like that. You know, if you will have me as your wife, my answer would be. Now, some people would say, well, this, is she asking to have sex here? I, I, I don't believe so. I don't think so. If you look at their characters, if you've studied the book of Ruth and understand who they are, you would under, you kind of catch on to that. Is there a desire there? Yes, but as his wife, that's the catch. Verse 10, it goes on, it says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kind, this kindness is greater than, than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So I think Boaz was interested, but I think he was also concerned. This is a lady from, from Moab. This is a lady who doesn't really know their God, who says, I'm going to follow your God, who says, I'm going to do things your way, Naomi. And, uh, you know, but, but uh, you know, she doesn't have a man. She needs a lot of help, has a mother-in-law that needs a lot of help. Is she going to be out there just chasing anybody who might interest her? Or is she going to sit back and wait or maybe he felt, man, I'm way out of her league. She is young. She's beautiful. All the guys have, have been looking at her. I'm older. She's not going to be interested in me. 
Now, ladies who are not married, sometimes guys don't pursue you because they feel that you would never, never be interested in them. So show some interest in a godly, a godly man, and who knows what will happen at the proper age, okay? Not at 14, not at 16. But verse 11, it says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you as you ask. He's basically saying, you can trust me. All the fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. So we start to see he's noticed who she is. He's noticed how she's acted. And and these are both good people showing that they're equally yoked. I mean, on, on the surface, it looks like a mismatch, right? He's rich, she's poor. He's older, she's younger. She's a Moabite, he's a Hebrew. She, you know, he's the employer, she's the employee. But in God's eyes, this is a perfect match, an equal match. Both love, you know, they both love God and they both have incredible character. You know what we're concerned about today? Does he sweep me off my feet? Does he make me look good? When it should be, what is this person's character? Do they love God? See, that's what makes a perfect fit a great fit. So everything's settled, right? They're they're a good match, right? They can get married, right? Not quite. There's always a catch in a love story, right? And and there's one here, and we're going to go through that. But I want to take the rest of the time today. Like I said, it's not a, a, a normal uh, sermon. But I want to take the, to the rest of the time to talk to those who are not married, to give practical advice to those that are, that are not married. Because marriage is the most important commitment that you will make after committing to Christ. It's the most important thing. It's the one thing that will affect the rest of your life. Some people would say, we're not made to be with one person. And you know what? You are absolutely right because sin has entered this world. But with God, with God, we are made to be with one person. Without God, it's hard to be with one person. With God, you're made to be with one person. God enters the picture and he changes things because marriage is the most important commitment that you can make to another person. You know, the best, the best thing you can do for a marriage is make the right decision in the first place. To choose the right person. I remember the 1984 draft. I was 14. <clears throat> and uh, was in Houston. Grew up in Houston. And, and the Houston Rockets had the first pick. And they picked Akeem Olajuwon. Phenomenal player. Unbelievable player. I've actually met him several times because he, he went to University of Houston. And then when I went to U of H and I was a trainer there, he'd come in and talk to the, the head trainer there. So I'd, you know, talk to him and actually play basketball with him uh, a couple of times. It was a lot of fun. I mean, he would, you know, act all goofy because he could just kill us on the basketball court, you know. But he was the first one pick. I'm talking about a good pick, right, for the team. The third pick was Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. I mean, Need I say more, right? The fourth or, or the fifth pick was Charles Barkley. Okay? Do you know who the second pick was? Sam Bowie. And most people, I heard, yeah, one person knew that. Sam Bowie. And most of us go, who? Exactly. He was very injury prone. 
Imagine the guy from the Portland Trailblazers who convinced the team to pick Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan. Yeah. Picking the right person is important, isn't it? It's important for the team. And it's important for the marriage because a marriage is a team. So how do you choose a spouse wisely? Well, I have eight things, and this is where you get out the pen and paper, okay? Eight things. Number one, eight don'ts. Don't get married in a hurry. Yes, I know some of you may say, my grandparents did, and they're still married six years later. Well, hallelujah. Okay, that's a great thing. But you can go over Niagara Falls in a, in a barrel if you want, and you might survive, okay? That's what getting married at a young age. See, a red flag is after a few months of dating, you're like, this is the person. You have no idea about dirty dishes, conflict, money issues, career struggles, mortgage payments, kids, usually, sickness, fighting over if you're going to watch the Hallmark Channel or the football game. You have no, you know, means family issues because you not only marry the person, you marry their family. Did you know that? If you're a young person, you marry the family. For the rest of your life, you're going to have to do, you know, for uh, us adopting little Grayson, the rest of our lives, we are married in a sense, in a weird way, but we're married to some extended family. In my family, we never had the his, her, ours thing throughout her family and my family. We didn't have that with our parents and stuff. And now it feels like the his, hers, ours thing. I mean, we had the grandparents here last night. To, uh, they were holding on to Grayson for most of the nights and stuff uh, at the event and stuff. It's just really cool, but all of a sudden, we, we have family. When you get married, you have family. That means watching each other get old and gray and wrinkled. You know what's the worst thing about having an infant at home when you're 45? Their skin is perfect. See, if you're a grandparent, which I'm at the age of actually could be a grandparent, but, you know, it's acceptable. But when your mom and dad you're and their little kids, their hand is right next to your hand, you're like, oh, man, I'm getting old. People are ready to make a commitment after a few weeks sometimes, and you don't need to do that. Research has found that long-term dating leads to more marital joy. Short-term, more heartbreak. So don't, you know, don't, don't just believe me. Ask the people around you. Ask those who've been married a long time what makes a good marriage. And, you know, if, ask them, how long did you date? And I guarantee you, if, if you run a, across a couple dated a long time before they got married, they will not say, oh, I regretted dating a long time. I regretted doing that. So don't get married in a hurry. Secondly, don't get married too young. Did you know that the divorce rate for marriages at 21 and 22 is twice as high as those of when you're older? If you wait a couple of years, you double the odds for a successful marriage. That's just plain wisdom, okay? Now, does that mean if you got married at that age that your marriage is doomed? No, 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 because if God is in it, your marriage can be a phenomenal marriage, okay? But you can't select a spouse that well if you don't know yourself that well. Because who you are in high school is not the same person you're going to be in college. Because you mature, hopefully, (laughs) 
you come into your own thinking, hopefully, you start to realize that, oh, I have to do my own dishes. My mom and dad aren't here to do them for me, hopefully. As a person, you're trying to still figure out who you're, you know, figure out your spiritual life. So don't get married when you're too young. Number three, don't get married when you're desperate. Yeah, you'd be, ama- you'd be amazed at how many people do this. If you want to be, you know, be with somebody and you break up with someone, sometimes you'll marry the next one. Hmm. Don't be desperate in your relationship because the thinking goes like this. If I don't meet someone soon, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And anything is better than being alone. No, that's not true. I'm telling you, being with the wrong person is much harder than being alone. It's much worse than waiting. Number four, don't get married to please someone. This means don't get married to please your parents. Don't get married to please your friends, you know, other people your, your age. The Bible is clear. You are to leave your father and mother, and you are to cleave with your, your, your loved one. You become one. The two become one. So first you must leave, and then you must cleave. Uh, leaving is, is not just getting out of the house. It's becoming your own person, your own identity, your own value. If a person you're dating has a parent that, will not, that they will not leave, in other words, that parent kind of controls them for, you know, to a certain extent, run, get away. Do not get involved there because that parent will always try to control your relationship. Leaving means making your own decisions, not relying on mommy and daddy to tell you what to do. Now, does that mean don't go to them for advice? No, 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 no. You need to go to your parents for advice, especially if they're wise parents. But then that means making your own decision afterward, taking their advice and deciding what you're going to do. Because when you leave or you get married, you have to live with your spouse. So don't choose someone because a parent or best friend thinks you ought to. Now, again, you can go to your parents for advice, but you should always go home to your spouse. Parents, help your children become great decision makers. Help your children become great decision makers. It's the best thing you could do to the, for them other than leading them toward Christ. Because the child will eventually ask the question, how will I know when I'm, I, I am in love? How will I know when I figured out that this is the right one? And the, response, the standard response is, you just know. And they go, yeah, you just know. And they have no clue what you're saying. I mean, this is the dumbest response I've ever heard. You just know. It just happens like chicken pox or indigestion. You just know when it happens. I mean, the best answer is you must, you, you must learn to listen to yourself very carefully because you need to become the expert on your own values, your own thoughts, your own desires, your own emotions, and you need to be really clear on the type of person that you want to marry. Now, don't set your bar so high that no one ever meets those expectations. But there's some give and take in a marriage. 
But don't grab the first one who pays attention to you either. I mean, what values do they have? What morals do they have? What character do they have? What roles do they play? What ambition do they have? What spiritual commitment should they have? And does that match who you are? Number five, don't get married when you're unfamiliar with each other. This goes along with getting married too quickly. You need to know who they are. You need to know their tendencies, how they handle stress, how they handle anger, how they handle spirituality, you know, their spiritual life, how they handle conflict. How many kids do they want? Because nothing causes conflict in a marriage if one wants one kids or no kids and the other one wants 16 kids, okay? There's a conflict there, and there will always be. The goal when you get married is oneness. The goal is unity, to be loved and to, be lo- and to love. And if you are committed to the marriage, you really need to know each other. Now, Lisa and I started, or we started dating almost 26 years ago. I mean, we were four at the time because my wife is not over 30, okay? I'm just saying. But we dated for three and a half years before we got married. Someone asked me right after marriage, well, how's married life? And my response to them was, not much different than dating life. I mean, you know, I mean, so we moved in together. Other than that, it wasn't different because we knew each other. We hung out with each other. We knew each other's thoughts and all that kind of stuff. We didn't know the plans that God would have for us, but we knew the direction. And we knew that that direction would be till death do us part and to be forward, that we would always be together. And together is important in a marriage. So the sixth one, don't get married with unrealistic expectations. It will kill your marriage if you have unrealistic expectations. The fantasy that if you marry well, you will never feel alone. And then you have the first big fight in your marriage, and guess what? You start to feel alone. And then you start thinking, did I marry the right person? See, your expectation is I'll never feel alone. See, marriage is a, is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't solve every problem in life. You will still be you, and you will still bring that into your marriage. And if you're not okay with alone, then you're not going to be okay with together in a marriage. And number seven, don't get married when you're unhealthy. Okay, and I, I, I could be talking about physical unhealthy, but I'm talking about more mental unhealthy. Anger issues or jealousy issues or integrity issues or, or selfishness. Because if you, you know, if there's qualities you don't like in yourself or the person you're dating when you're dating them, guess what? They only get bigger and worse as you get married. You will never, I don't want to say never, because Good marriages go through different phases, and, and it becomes, your marriage becomes even better. But I do want to say that when you're dating, you're never going to like each other more than at that point because you gloss over all the little things that may irritate you. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in marriage, and what happens? Alan's irritating Lisa. No, no, heavens no. I would never irritate my wife, huh? Oh, man, I tell you, I do so many different things that irritate the heck out of her. But we're together. We're in unity. And she knew those things about me ahead of time, so she could never say, well, I didn't know this about him. 
did I marry the right person? You see what I'm saying? You have to know the person. Going back to that one. So don't date somebody when, when you're unhealthy or they're unhealthy. You have to ask yourself, can I live with the, these qualities of this person if they never change? Because you cannot change your spouse. It doesn't happen that way. Well, when I get married, you're, I'm going to change this about them. No. No. Give up on that dream. It doesn't happen. Now, unless God is involved and God changes them, but you're not going to do the changing, okay? If your answer is, I can't live with it, then I say run. Run, run, run. If you're dating them, okay? If they have serious, you know, defects of, of character or problems with drugs and alcohol, if they've not addressed those things, run, get out, do not cross, go, get away from them. Now, the last one. Don't get married to someone who is too different than you. I know we love the statement that um, opposites attract, right? But reality is everyone's different. But the research says that everything you have in common before you're married is like money in the bank for that marriage. Common values, common spiritual values, common interests. Common energy, ambition, united in understanding. This all adds up to a successful marriage. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, don't be unequally yoked. Don't be spiritually mismatched. That means you need to be headed in the same direction, committed to sharing, and this is not a casual thing. We will choose to do one of two things in our life. We will either choose to move toward God or away from God. So you need to choose a person. If you're moving toward God, you need to choose a person that's going toward God. Because if they're not, what happens? You're trying to split apart. You're moving in opposite directions. You need to marry somebody who's going to pull you toward God and not away from God. Don't make the most important decision of your life after your decision to follow God than to get yoked to someone who doesn't share that same value. Pray and wait for God to show you the right one, and he will. That's what he's doing for Ruth and Naomi, and I mean Ruth and Boaz here. And he does it on his time schedule. And don't give up, because you'll pay a high price if you give up. Hold out for the someone who has the same great commitment that you have for God. You need to honor your commitment of marriage by choosing the right one. Now, what if you're married and you broke some of these don'ts? Hmm. Start praying. Start praying for, for God to intervene in that marriage, for God to make changes in that marriage, because the Lord can help you change your marriage. But I know one thing. The Lord has to work on you first. Because if you start saying, Lord, change my spouse... He, da-da-da-da-da, or she, da-da-da-da-da. And God's sitting there going, well, what about you, da-da-da-da-da-da? God wants to change you. You can do your part. That's one thing I've learned in relationships, whether it's friendships or, or marriage or whatever. You have to work on your part. You can only do your part. You can ask for forgiveness. They're, they're the ones that have to choose to forgive you or not. But you have to ask for that forgiveness first. And then you can, you're, you're free of that in a, in a sense. You can wash your hands of that. You don't have to worry about that. But you have to do your part. God is waiting for you. The Lord is waiting for you to say, I want to have a great marriage. 
Now, if you're single, God loves you just as much as he loves a married person. You know, in, in, in that culture back then, to be single was to be looked down upon. The, to, to almost, God is not blessing you. It's almost like having children back then. God is not blessing you. And, and, and now the, the more we understand the Bible, it's not necessarily like that. If you're single, God loves you just as much as a married person. You need to stay pure. You need to follow in, in his way and, and, and be single with integrity until the time comes and if the time comes when the Lord provides the right person. And if that's your desire, then start praying and then follow some of these well, follow every one of these things because you want a good marriage. Just ask those that have been married a long time. Some of those, some, uh, some of those honest marriages will say, you know what, it's been tough. I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd done, uh, done that. Others would say, man, the Lord just gave me a great mate and, and we've had our ups and downs, but we're, we've always gone straight ahead and forward. If you want good dating advice, find somebody who's been, you know, been married 20, 25 years and start asking them about marriage before you get married. So important. Don't go into marriage lightly because marriage is a wonderful thing and it can be an excruciating thing if you choose wrong. Now, let me say this one last thing and we'll be done because I'm over time. Is there only one person out there for you? See, some people think, man, if I, there's this one person out there, and if I miss that person, that's it. No, that's not how it works. There's a personality type out there for you, and once you find that personality type and the Lord puts you together, great. Now, once you're married, another personality type may come along that meets that same personality type. Don't be attracted to that. You have your mate, okay? Stay, stay strong. Stay committed. Don't be straying. But don't go with the, the, you know, don't stick with the, I have to find that one, person out, uh, that one person, and if I miss that person, I'm doing the rest of my life. It doesn't work that way, okay? Pray to God, and he will provide, just like he's doing with Ruth in the book of Ruth. So why don't we stand, and I'll pray for, for those unmarried and married alike this morning. Lord, I thank you for the institution of marriage. I thank you that you can... Uh, bond one uh, male and one female together and, and uh, it'd be a beautiful thing in your sight. We pray for those marriages that, that are here, that uh, they can be great examples to the young people, that you would continue to build those marriages, that you would continue to, to uphold them in a way that is glorifying you. I pray for those that, are, that may be struggling in marriage right now, that that you intervene, that, that they look to you and say, what can I change in myself to make my marriage better? And then slowly over time, Lord, that you just turn that into a great marriage. And I pray for those that are, that are single. I pray that you give them a commitment towards you to look for the right spouse if that is the desire that you put in their heart. To look for the right person to date, not just to, to pick anyone, not just to go after uh, anything that, that, that may look their way, Lord that you have a person out there. You have a, a, a person who's, who's going towards you. And we're just waiting for you to put it together. And I pray that you do that for those that have that desire in, the, in your timing, Lord, in the right time. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
the Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you just as he blessed Ruth and, and, and Boaz in their relationship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Turn.